episode of the eMigCast mini-series, Climate Change and Human Health. My name is Katie, and through the course of the next eight episodes, I will be walking you through the many ways that climate change impacts human health. We will discuss heat, cold, extreme weather, infectious disease, air quality, food and water, and mental health. We will then dive into climate migration and how climate change is affecting various populations in different ways. This mini-series is a part of the scholarly project to explore podcasts as a climate change education tool for healthcare professionals. There's a short survey that I hope you will fill out after listening. It should take you no more than three minutes and would be a huge help to the project. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. Today, we will be discussing heat, which is a natural first topic when you are exploring climate change, which is better known as global warming. The warming of our planet is driven by the accumulation of greenhouse gases like methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide, which are gases that form a layer of insulation and trap heat in our air and water systems. And how do we know that these gases are accumulating? Through an amazing technique called ice core drilling. Scientists drill deep down into huge glaciers in regions like Greenland, Antarctica, and parts of North America. These ice cores are able to tell us the different concentrations of certain gases in the air over time. Think of it like rings around a tree, or layers of sedimentary rock. As snow falls and accumulates, air gets trapped in the spaces between snowflakes and is preserved there. By drilling into these huge glaciers, we can pull out a time capsule that tells us about the levels of gases in the air over time. Global temperatures directly correspond to atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide and methane, and over the last 150 years, our Earth has seen these gases accumulating in quantities never seen before. With these increases in greenhouse gases, we're seeing increasing global temperatures. In the 20th century alone, the Earth's average temperature increased by 0.85 degrees Celsius, and the scariest part of that is that most of that increase has happened since 1975. Our world is now warming at a rate of over 0.18 degrees Celsius per decade. So now let's talk about how these rising temperatures are impacting human health. In this episode, we will focus mostly on extreme heat events, better known as heat waves. However, it's also important to recognize the effects of chronic heat exposure on human health. For example, agricultural workers in Central America are experiencing chronic kidney disease at epidemic proportions due to the daily dehydration from insufficient water intake relative to how much they sweat in their daily work. It's also known that a core body temperature of over 39 degrees Celsius throughout a pregnancy can have a teratogenic effect, which impacts fetal brain development. Extreme heat can also change the pharmacodynamics of a variety of prescription drugs, leading to increasing serious adverse reactions. Antipsychotics alter the body's ability to thermoregulate, which puts these patients at higher risk of adverse heat exposure outcomes. And finally, chronic exposure to heat contributes to clinical deterioration for individuals with chronic conditions such as heart disease, pulmonary disease, and diabetes. The chronic effects of heat exposure are are at times difficult to measure because heat is not often recognized as a contributing factor in many chronic diseases. It's even harder to measure mortality of chronic heat exposure because those deaths are often recorded under another cause. However, data surrounding extreme heat events is much clearer and honestly quite frightening. 
Extreme heat kills people at staggering rates. In fact, in the U.S., it causes more deaths than all other weather-related fatalities combined. The most vulnerable populations are children under 5, adults over 65, individuals with chronic diseases, pregnant women, and those with low socioeconomic status. People living in urban areas are also at greater risk due to an effect called the urban heat island. This effect is created when forests and other green spaces are replaced by asphalt, buildings, and other impenetrable surfaces. Green spaces tend to absorb heat and provide canopy covers to block heat out. When natural systems are replaced with urban development, the resulting heat-retaining impervious surfaces reflect the heat into their surrounding environments, creating microclimates that can be up to 5.6 degrees Celsius warmer than the neighboring areas. Urban areas also tend to be resistant to nighttime cooling, which further contributes to the elevated temperatures found in urban heat islands. When these elevated temperatures turn into extreme heat events, the vulnerable urban populations experience significant morbidity and mortality. Extreme heat does its damage through five major pathophysiologic mechanisms. Ischemia, heat cytotoxicity, inflammatory response, DIC, and rhabdomyolysis. These processes tend to impact seven vital organs, the heart, kidneys, lung, brain, intestines, liver, and pancreas. We will break it up by organ system, though this can be somewhat challenging due to the complex interactions of each system. But we'll do our best, and we will start with the heart. When our body is exposed to heat, the thermoregulatory system in the hypothalamus activates the cardiovascular system to respond. This response entails vasodilation of blood vessels that carry the blood to the skin, where heat can be dissipated away from the body. In times of extreme heat stress, the heart is required to increase cardiac output up to 10 liters per minute above baseline. However, due to the peripheral vasodilation, there is a decrease in end diastolic volume, which means that the heart has to pump faster and harder to achieve adequate cardiac output. The heart is working overtime to help cool the body off and therefore requires an increasing oxygen supply. However, the blood being shunted to the periphery pulls blood and oxygen away from the heart, which puts patients with underlying heart disease at greater risk of ischemic events. In addition, the cardiovascular system also undergoes inflammatory and cytotoxic insults during times of heat stress. Cytotoxic injury to cardiac myocytes results in membrane disruption and death. As this occurs, the striations that allow for organized contraction of myocardial tissue are disrupted, decreasing the effectiveness of the heart and increasing the risk of a cardiac arrest. A study that looked at hospital admissions for cardiovascular disease and myocardial infarction found that elevated temperatures led to increased admissions for the next one to two days. In the 1976 London heat wave, deaths from coronary thrombosis almost doubled. Okay, next we will chat about the lungs and kidneys. The lungs are actually a lot more impacted by extreme cold than extreme heat. However, the cytotoxic effects of heat on the pulmonary endothelium can result in increased vascular permeability and an acute lung injury. The kidneys are primarily affected by ischemia due to blood flow shunting to peripheral tissues, which can cause acute tubular necrosis. Additionally, rhabdomyolysis occurs when skeletal muscle cells break down due to heat and then release myoglobin into the bloodstream. The myoglobin is toxic to nephrons and can clog the renal tubules, resulting in an AKI. The brain is the next system we will discuss. The brain is primarily affected through cytotoxic and inflammatory mechanisms, 
though DIC to extreme heat can have a profound effect on central nervous system function. Cytotoxicity can cause the disruption of the blood-brain barrier, which allows for the infiltration of cytokines, toxins, and pathogens into the brain. Two cytokines that are often elevated in heat stroke are TNF-alpha and IL-1. These inflammatory cytokines are associated with increased intracranial pressure, decreased cerebral blood flow, and severe nervous system injury. When a patient is experiencing hyperthermia and central nervous system dysfunction, a diagnosis of heat stroke can be made. Brain dysfunction ranges from subtle, like impaired judgment or behavior, to severe, like delirium, seizures, or even a coma. In the U.S. in the 2009 to 2010 year, there was an average of over 8,000 emergency department visits for heat stroke per year, over half of which required hospitalization. Next, we will chat about the GI tract, which actually plays a pretty significant role in heat stroke. When the body shifts blood to the skin to dissipate heat, it moves blood away from splanchnic organs. This causes gut ischemia, which results in increased intestinal mobility and increased metabolic demand of the intestinal and hepatic cells. This increased demand with decreased blood flow results in hypoxia of the GI tissue, which further exacerbates the injury to the mucosa. Mucosal injury decreases the immunologic barrier of the GI tract, which allows for systemic release of endotoxins, inflammatory cytokines, and the release of vasoactive factors that alter systemic vascular tone and can cause hypotension, which then decreases cerebral perfusion and causes heat stroke. The altered immunologic barrier of the GI tract also allows for the leakage of bacteria and endotoxins into the blood, which can cause sepsis. While we are chatting about the GI tract, let's chat about two of the other vital organs in this area, the liver and the pancreas. The liver can be affected via cytotoxic and inflammatory mechanisms, which cause the release of liver endotoxins into the blood. It can also undergo ischemic damage when blood is shunted away from splanchnic organs. The good news is, acute liver failure associated with extreme heat is rare. Liver injury associated with extreme heat is most often mild to moderate in severity and reversible with cooling therapies. The pancreas is also impacted by cytotoxic and inflammatory mechanisms, which can cause erosion of the pancreatic endothelial walls. This allows for leukocyte infiltration into pancreatic tissue, exacerbating inflammation. Finally, I would like to chat about a pathophysiologic mechanism that affects all of the organs that I've already mentioned. DIC, or disseminated intervascular coagulation. Heat stroke is accompanied by a massive activation of the coagulation cascade and enhanced fibrinolysis. This results in abnormal coagulation and clot formation, which then block blood flow to vital organs, further contributing to the ischemia caused by the shunting of blood. At the same time, clotting factors and platelets are being consumed in mass amounts, which leads to increased bleeding and even fatal hemorrhage. Okay, so now that I've warned you about how heat waves will impact human health, let's talk about a few ways to mitigate these impacts. Full disclosure, I do not believe in placing the responsibility of slowing climate change on the individual, but I do encourage you to find ways to get involved with or advocate for sustainable initiatives in your community. Most of the strategies I'll mention rely on community, city, and even global efforts. Some of them rely on changes to our healthcare system. All require innovation, determination, and community care. One of the most obvious ways to decrease the incidence of heat-related illnesses is to slow the rate of climate change through the reduction of global greenhouse gas emissions. This falls largely on countries like the United States, China, and Russia, who are the biggest contributors. 
I won't get too much into government and policy roles here, but that is where most of the responsibility lies. More tangible options in your community could include green roofs, urban forests, and community gardens that can be added to cities to help cool the urban heat island effect. Our next step at mitigating the impact of heat waves is implementing heat health warning systems that are linked to acute public health interventions. These systems use weather forecasting tools to determine when the temperature will be hot enough that it will have a negative impact on the community's health. When this happens, there are a variety of interventions that can be put in place, including increased access to air conditioners, swimming pools, and cooling centers. These interventions also often include telephone check-ins or home visits for vulnerable community members. The most significant risk factor for morbidity and mortality during a heat wave is lack of access to air conditioners. During the 1995 Chicago heat wave, people with access to AC had a 70% lower chance of dying than those without access. However, air conditioners are a bit of a catch-22. They require energy, which often contributes to greenhouse gas emissions, further progressing climate change. However, cooling centers offer a more energy-efficient way to provide people with a cool environment. They do require that individuals have transportation to the center, though. A community-based approach that identifies homebound individuals at risk for heat-related illness and provides them with an air conditioner, while offering cooling centers for people who are able to access them, would significantly reduce morbidity and mortality during higher temperatures. And even though I said I wouldn't put the responsibility on you as the individual to halt global climate change, I do want to highlight how awesome self-transport commuting is. Self-transport, or walking, biking, running, rollerblading, unicycling, or doing anything else that gets you from point A to point B, provides a really cool thing that is referred to as a health co-benefit. This means that the activity not only benefits the person doing it by providing things like decreased cardiovascular disease, decreased obesity, and decreased all-cause mortality, but these activities also provide benefit to the environment through decreased greenhouse gases. So, these things can contribute both to the individual's health and the environment's health, which is a pretty cool thing. Alright, that is all I have for heat-related illnesses. I hope you found this to be interesting, informative, and useful. Just a quick reminder that this is a series as a part of a project to look at podcasts as a climate change education tool for healthcare providers. I would really appreciate it if you took just a couple of minutes to fill out the survey that's posted in the description. Thank you so much for listening! Next up, we'll chat about cold-related illnesses.